right. Recording. Yeah, hey, it's Zane Horowitz, and new season in Oregon Poison Center of Oregon Poison Center Journal Clubs. It's August uh, 2018. We're going to talk about two kind of controversial uh, topics that have to do with caustic ingestions. One is, uh, well, several things. Can we predict who has got a significant injury or not based on clinical findings? Um, number two is, can we change the course of them by giving them steroids? And the third is, can CT scanning be substituted when you have an issue where you can't get endoscopy, which is still the preferred method, but often difficult to achieve. So we're going to start out with, as we often do with these, a historical article. This article is nearly 50 years old, and I picked it for a couple of reasons, one of which was one of the authors, Lucian Leap, who went on to much greater things having to do with uh, uh, drug errors and a variety of things, and runs the LeapFrog project and all these other things that are out there. But this is probably early in his career. This article dates from the New England Journal in 1971 to a study they did in 1968 to 1970. But it shows you at a time when poison centers were literally just getting started, this was probably one of the biggest calls to poison centers was with uh, caustic mm -hmm. cleaning fluids. We still get a lot of cleaning fluids, but not even more as problematic as this was. So start out some data in 1969. Um, 76 plus thousand accidental ingestions in children reported to the National Clearinghouse for Poison Control Centers, which at that time was not in all 50 states. Um, and lye was certainly a big problem. Lye was in many liquid drain cleaners, and because it was, quote, promotional activities, which is basically TV advertising at that time, people were selling a variety of ones, and the one that was sort of new on the market was liquid plumber, spelled without an E at the end, so plumber. Um, which accounted for 17% um, of all the reported lie ingestions, so a substantial amount. So they look back, um, this group was in Kansas uh, Medical Center, and they looked back for two years, they found 20 children who underwent um, esophagoscopy, GI scoping. Um, their protocol at the time, and we'll compare it to some of the other articles, was they all got ampicillin 254 times a day and corticosteroids, either dexamethasone, 5 milligrams, or four times daily or pregnisone, 10 to 24 times a day. So both antibiotics and steroids. Uh, that was 1970s. Um, and they found, and again, just some basic epidemiology, um, some of these patients were pretty sick. Of note, there were seven out of the 20 patients who drank the liquid plumber, um, had both oral and esophageal burns, all were severe, all formed strictures, mm. all required uh, dilatation, which they were refractory to, and all seven of them required colonic inter-replacement, so they had to flip their colon up and make a new esophagus mm. for them. Um, and they gave an example, short vignette of the case, <coughs> of a two-and-a-half-year-old girl who fished what was felt to be an empty bottle of liver plumber out of the wastebasket, and maybe put the empty bottle or the cap to her mouth and immediately had pain, redness, and bleeding in her mouth. Um, she developed uh, progressive dysphagia. She had stricture formation confirmed by esophagoscopy, um, ended up distal two-thirds of her esophagus needed to be replaced ultimately with a clonic bypass uh, as a result of literally a capful or a mouthful of a presumed empty um, bottle. So what they did is they did a couple of Animal experiments that at the time may have been reasonable to do at 
our current time may not be so reasonable to do, but they took cats. Um, and uh, they anesthetized them and they put like a small aliquot of liquid plumber, you know, by direct visualization uh, with a catheter through their mouth onto their esophagus. And some of them they left it there for a second and washed it out with water, and some they washed out with dilute acetic acid. Um, and they use different amounts, basically. Um, the bottom line is as little as five cc's was uniformly fatal, no matter what they did for immediate, and this is immediate within seconds, dil dilution. Um, of the three cats given a one cc dose uh, with five seconds contact, um, one out of three died. So still pretty high for a minuscule amount of exposure. Um, and um, and they did a second um, experiment where they actually did a thoracotomy on, on other cats and through a esophagus incision put the same thing, liquid plumber there and soaked it in a pledget and left it down there for a few seconds, literally just seconds, and washed it off. And again, many of not all these cats had extensive injury with histiologic sections ultimately they found within 30 minutes they had a brownish discharge developed histologically developed extensive injury with only one second of exposure swelling necrosis of the epithelium 24 hours later um, they progressed to ulceration of the mucosa inflammatory action and uh, full thickness perforation of the bowel wall so this was a bad product this was a lie this was a high uh, pH of, um, I don't know if they said it in there, but I think it's uh, like in the 12 to 13 range. Um, it's 30% uh, sodium hydroxide. It, it's colorless, odorless, looked like water, except for this stuff in the viscous, so it poured more slowly, and perhaps that also gave it a more sticking to the surface quality about it as well. Um, previously, there were liquid forms of drain cleaners. There were granules, and they report historically those granule cap, uh, grains produced only a 10% risk of uh, esophageal lesions, even with short exposures, so this seemed to be a far more severe form. And, um, you know, they recommend, you know, what can we do about this? Well, we could educate people, um, maybe that'll help. We can make package protection, which wouldn't happen for years uh, with uh, child-resistant packaging for uh, Home products or uh, pharmaceuticals, or basically, like I said clearly, the best solution is just take the product off the market if we can do that. But obviously, that didn't happen. So, this was, you know, I think an early, almost prehistory of poison centers. Uh, description of one of the reasons poison centers came to exist: that these household products were not safe. They were left out. No matter how much education we did, people still got exposed to them and produced and raises several questions about what does it take to produce this injury, but obviously the injury occurs quickly. So our first uh, paper that we're going to review, uh, um, jump forward in time, 30 plus more years, uh, is one of how much pH does it do you need to cause an esophageal injury? So Adam, I'll let you take it away with that paper. Sure, thanks, Dane. So um, I'm reviewing a paper by Oslin Atog and others. Uh, the name of the paper is Critical pH Level of Lye, Sodium Hydroxide for Esophageal Injury, and this was published in March 2009. 
So uh, what this uh, paper does is, this is a, essentially a basic science paper, and it's looking at, I'll just summarize it really quickly, they take a rabbit esophagus epithelium, and they expose it to different levels of uh, lye based on pH uh, uh, with multiple controls, and see at what point is there significant damage. And so I'll now explain exactly what they did. So um, what they did was they took um, rabbit esophagus, they uh, euthanized these rabbits after anesthetizing them, uh, they surgically removed the esophagus, and they placed, um, they kind of cut open uh, the esophagus and made a strip out of the tissue, they removed um, the submucosal layer, and they placed it in a, a bath, a buffered bath, and they gradually titrated the pH up from physiologic up to uh, very alkaline levels. At the same time, they had um, essentially uh, microelectrodes that were reading the resistance, uh, the current flowing through uh, the tissue, and uh, the potential, the voltage potential difference, and uh, were able to track this both over time and in relation to the pH as it changed. So what they found was that uh, below pH of 11.5, there was essentially no change whatsoever. Uh, it, around 11.5, 11.7, this kind of ballpark, that's when things start to uh, break down. So um, they found that the um, current uh, increased sorry, and the uh, resistance decreased. And uh, this implies essentially breakdown of the cell membrane and dysfunction of the cell membrane. Now they did a couple of other things. One is they controlled for uh, the osmolarity, so for example, a solution at pH uh, 7.4 is going to be essentially isosmolar, but once you get into the pH of 12, that's a lot of sodium hydroxide. So they uh, controlled this by um, uh, treating other sections of rabbit esophagus with um, dextran, which is osmotically active, but not alkaline. And they showed that this really was a function of the alkaline environment, not of the osmolar. Um, another thing that they did, which was interesting, was they used uh, the compound wabane, which is uh, cardioactive uh, glycoside, uh, and that inhibited the sodium-potassium pump. And they were able to compare this uh, uh, treatment with, with non-treatment. And what they found was that um, uh, a lot of this uh, current difference is related to the sodium channel movement. Uh, I'm sorry, the sodium movement across the sodium channel as related to the sodium-potassium ATP pump. Um, it's um, so what they did after, um, so they have these electro, uh, electrical readings, uh, but afterwards they were also able to take uh, actual sections of the esophageal tissue and using a, essentially a pathologist who was blinded to the interventions, uh, grade these sections based on how much damage uh, was done by different pHs. Uh, this was of course controlled against uh, just normal osmolarity and it went all the way to a uh, full thickness necrosis with ulceration. Um, and as you might expect, um, at the very high levels, at the very high pHs, that's when you saw the most damage. But this didn't really didn't start to take off until a pH of 11.5. So it seems that up until that kind of magic number, there was not significant damage either histologically uh, or with any changes to the um, electric current. Um, so I thought that, uh, so the authors conclude even though this is an in vitro model, uh, what I really appreciated was they made a fairly bold conclusion that products uh, containing lye with a pH above 11.5 should probably be taken off the market.
reinforces perhaps 40 years later of what they found in that first article is that these high concentrated lye solutions, although they make a decompressor clog drain very well, are pretty dangerous to have around the house. And we certainly should be using something else. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think much has changed. I think you can still buy pretty concentrated and there are always kind of these super products that are out there. So, um, We'll turn to the, the next problem that we often have is we just came up last night with a different scenario, but basically, what do you do when someone comes in and they're exposed to something? What constellation of symptoms gets you worried? Is there any constellation or lack of constellation of symptoms that makes you completely reassured that nothing is going on? So this too is a bit of an older paper, but a classic one, um, looking at those for corrosive injuries. So. Um, Ellen, tell us about that. Yeah, so this paper was done by Gorman and colleagues. Uh, the title is Initial Symptoms as Predictors of Esophageal Injury and Alkaline Corrosive Injections. It was done in January of 91. So they did a two-year prospective study at seven um, poison centers. And basically what they were doing was comparing the symptom presentation to uh, the findings on esophagos esophagoscopy. So um, they had a checklist of all of the symptoms that they were looking for, which I'll go into in a minute, and they were looking at whether the, eso the esophagoscopy was positive or negative. And uh, positive in this case was defined as a second or third degree esophageal burn. Negative would be just uh, first or or no burns identified. So they found uh, that the 403 cases over the two-year period, um, and out of those, um, 336 met their criteria, um, and 248 of those did not have an esophagoscopy. Sorry, the criteria was that they had to consume um, pH, something with pH over 12 and um, that they had to have a sufficient data, like sufficient symptomatic and esoph esophagoscopy data. Um, so what's interesting about this study in comparison to others that have looked at similar in, uh, ingestions is that the they had a kind of a higher age range so the, their mean was uh, about 14 years, um, and it was up to 80 years, and about 80% of their um, cases, or 85% were, 85% um, were accidental, but what ended up being included was a lot of suicide attempts. Um, most of the thing, most of the people involved in the study had, uh, consumed all-purpose cleaners or drain cleaners and um, the ones that had the most symptoms uh, which was a hundred percent of a hundred percent of them uh, had all consumed lye so um, they divided up their results into positive esophagoscopy negative and um, not endoscoped they also had a, a category for esophagoscopy and suicidal patients, which they didn't really address beyond putting in the table. Um, 
So the symptoms that they looked at were refusing to swallow, nausea, vomiting, drooling, cough, abdominal pain, dysphagia, strider, and oral burns. Um, they found significant differences in terms of esophagoscopy findings and uh, refusal to swallow, vomiting, drooling, abdominal pain, dysphagia, and oral burns. Um, and interestingly, oral burns uh, were presented more frequently in both positive and negative esophagoscopy. The other ones um, presented more often in positive, but uh, less often in negative, as, as one might expect. Um, so the other thing that they were trying to do was to, like the point of the study was to try to find predictors of, of positive esophagoscopies. So they looked at the sensitivity and specificity as, long, as well as the positive and uh, negative predictive values of these different symptoms and were trying to like find, figure out who, who we should look at their esophagoscopy for. Um, the, the symptoms weren't that predictive <laughs> alone. Hmm. Um, the, main, the main one that they found that was 100% specific uh, was Strider, um, and that had a, posit a positive predictive value of 100%. Had a sensitivity of 17, 17%, um, but they didn't find anything that was both s sensitive and specific. So then after that, they tried to see if maybe there's a constellation of symptoms that might be a better predictor. Um, and they didn't find that anything is that good at predicting that either. Um, they found one, one constellation had a negative predictive value of 96%, um, and that's uh, vomiting, dysphagia, abdominal pain, and oral burns. Um, but their pos highest positive predictive value was 71%. They're high. So, like, it's, they didn't have that good of luck with any of those things. So the, the conclusion of this study is really that uh, symptoms aren't really good predictors of what you're going to find when you look into people's mm -hmm. esophagi. Um, and they, they didn't have any hope for finding a, a, better, a better system and, and symptomatic prediction of esophagoscopy. So it was somewhat controversial about who, who would and would not get <coughs> endoscoped, and a lot of it was sort of a fielder's choice and the whims of the person doing the scope in the first place. So they tried, this was a prospective study as far as gathering symptoms of a checklist, right. rather than just a retrospective chart review where you might say the kid was vomiting, but if you didn't ask if they were also coughing or drooling, then that wasn't important. So, Hopefully all the symptoms were recorded prospectively, but they didn't have a, a policy that you must be scoped or not scoped. In fact, many of them were not, so mm. it's hard to say. There's two reasons to do studies like this. Obviously, everyone likes to talk about sensitivity and specificity, but the real thing I think that I think that they're looking for is what what's the best negative predictive mm -hmm. value. Like, if all of this isn't there, then I don't have to go forward, because they basically basically said the opposite. It's like, if any one of these things there, you can never, ever right. rule out that there isn't a problem, a second or third degree burn. And they found a few things with high negative predictive value, but really nothing more than, you know, 80s percentage. So unfortunately, they, 
they sort of failed in both. Sort of the highest combination for a negative predictive value is if they didn't have vomiting, didn't have dysphagia, didn't have abdominal pain, and didn't have oral burns. That was the highest negative predictive value of 0 0.96 or 96%, but you'll still miss one out of 20, 4% or so. Mm. So we're stuck with the same you know, issue nowadays, even though studies are 20, 30 years old. Um, it's like, who do you scope? And I don't think we have a better answer, and that's done a better uh, controlled trial um, other than maybe we don't have to scope people who have absolutely no symptoms, and we watch them, and they're drinking water, and there's an accidental, and we can believe them. And sometimes we get the perfect storm of, the world, of those people that, that exist, but you never know. Um, I would say I would have a high threshold for anyone who drank lye or pH of above 11 um, for scoping them no matter what was going on. Um, so that's sort of maybe the take-home message from, from that group there. Changing gears a little bit, you know, we're going to talk about two papers here back-to-back uh, -back with, a, with an editorial in between. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, issues were, should we treat these kids with steroids, which decreases inflammation, does that make a difference? And we're sort of going to talk about one study from the 90s and one study from the last few years that came <coughs> to somewhat different conclusions and actually sort of were both instrumental in sort of driving care for those periods of time. So start with the more historical paper from the 90s, which uh, was a you know, pretty big paper at that time. Um, Dan's going to tell us about that one from the New England Journal. Yeah, so this uh, paper is by Catherine D. Anderson and her colleagues titled A Controlled Trial of Corticosteroids in Children with Corrosive Injury of the Esophagus. Um, it was a 18-year prospective study. Uh, it enrolled 131 kids, but only 60 of them had uh, esophageal injury from liar acid. So it then ended up using those uh, 60 kids to um, look at whether or not um, steroids in children with uh, caustic injuries um, has any benefit, um, primarily in terms of preventing stricture formation. And the reason behind this was that in murine models, they showed that corticosteroids decrease like inflammatory responses um, in the mice and rodents and things of that nature. So of these 60 kids, um, 31 of them were put in the steroid group, 29 were in the control group, and they were all graded on um, the severity of their caustic injury by EGD, um, grade one being just limitary edema and the mucosa of the esophagus and then to grade three being circumferential ulceration. And the amount of steroids that they gave uh, the children was uh, determined dosed on their body weight, so two milligrams per kilogram IV um, until um, each day, um, until they were able to um, adequately take something in orally. And then once they were, they would give them 2.5 milligrams per kilogram of prednisone for three weeks and then taper them off from two to three weeks. Um, all were followed up um, three to four weeks later to see if there was any um, stricture formation in these kids. And so the main findings of the paper were that um, 10 out of the 31 kids in the steroid group um, had strictures um, versus 11 out of the 29 um, in the control group had strictures. So pretty much there was no significant difference between the two groups, whether they had steroids or not, um, in determining uh, which ones were going to have uh, stricture formation. But what they did note was that um, of those 10 um, k 
kiddos that uh, had strictures in the steroid group, nine of them were um, had the third degree lesions. Um, and then whereas in the control group, all 11 had the third degree lesions. So in conclusion, um, the formation of stricture was heavily dependent on um, the type of injury or the grade of injury. The more severe the injury, the higher the stricture formation was gonna be. And that corticosteroids didn't have any um, benefit um, in terms of uh, preventing stricture formation in these um, children. And then uh, one side effect that they did note um, in the steroid group was one child had a um, had developed a brain abscess, mm -hmm. um, so it was pretty um, severe um, side effect. The falls of this paper um, or the setbacks um, that I would note were that there was different lanes in the prednisolone um, that weren't reported because it was again uh, determined by when they were able to um, adequately take something in orally and that there was more patients uh, with second degree burns in the story groups. So it was hard to like really randomize control these, um, these children. Um, one thing that they did um, highlight though, um, was that patients who were treated with steroids um, ended up needing less um, esophageal replacement. So only four out of the 10 um, children who had strictures needed esophageal replacement in the steroid group compared to seven out of 11. Um, in the control group, which is really small numbers and it was not um, shown to be significant, but hopefully like future studies with um, a larger sample size can show, uh, continue demonstrating that trend. So um, moving forward, we had the editorial piece by Lovejoy and mainly what the, um, the piece uh, conveyed was an overview of uh, caustic injury in children. Um, for some reason, ingestion of poisons um, in children happen to be something that's less severe, less frequent, um, and has less consequence in children. However, ingestion of uh, corrosive agents, um, such as lye and bleach, um, have a higher impact on their um, morbidity and mortality. Alkalis um, are associated with liquefactive necrosis, are more involved in penetration, whereas acids um, are more involved in coagulation necrosis and have less penetration. And then there's a variety of substances, household substances that can contribute to these caustic injuries, including dishwasher soap, batteries, um, again, drain cleaners, um, toilet cleaners, things of that nature. Um, the pattern of injury is um, very similar to what we see throughout the body, whereas in the first 24 hours, you see edema, you see recruitment of fibroblasts. Um, within one to two weeks, you see collagen deposition, and then three to four weeks, you, that's when you start to see the um, stricture formation. And that um, EGD, uh, especially flexible, um, EGD is the main uh, stay of determining the severity of the injury, as um, Elle alluded to, the symptoms um, at presentation really have no bearing on how severe the injury is, or so we need to be able to um, see it um, through the scope. Um, and then uh, Lovejoy did note um, the Anderson study, uh, mainly um, acknowledging the takeaways that we went over was that, again, uh, the study of corticosteroids um, shows minimal benefit um, that there's needed for uh, randomized control trials, and that um, these studies also um, have offered uh, various doses. So there's a lot of limitations associated with these um, studies. Um, that was also demonstrated in the Anderson study. And that um, the best way to um, help treat this, I guess, is a, is a mainstay of like just preventing it. 
um, ensuring that there's some sort of child protective locks and safety mechanisms in the house. Yeah, they do mention that the Safety Packaging Act was en enacted in 1970, so a little bit after about the time that first article was, mm -hmm. was written, but still 20 years before this paper was done, um, which is maybe why it took them, you know, a, a decade to basically get, or more than a decade to get their 60 patients with they were able to get scoped at, at one institution at least. Um, you know, some of the interesting things they were mostly using rigid uh, yeah. esophagoscopy at that time, which we really don't use anymore. And so one of the sort of things that was sort of the dogma at the time was you can only scope them up to the first lesion. Hmm. You don't want to go past that because you would potentially tear that lesion as you were going further in the esophagus. So you never really knew if there were strict, if there were deeper lesions. You saw a first or second degree lesion, you would stop. There could be a third degree lesion further down, but you're not going to see it because of the nature of rigid uh, esophagoscopy. I think we've changed since then. We have flexible, and in the hands of an experienced endoscopist, you can kind of work your way past most minor lesions. You know, I don't know if you'd go past a, a horrible serrated third degree lesion, but then you have your answer that you have a third degree lesion. Um, so maybe some of those differences would be different if a similar study was done today. Um, but I think one of the other big take-home points was everybody who developed strictures pretty much plus one had third-degree mm -hmm. lesions, and maybe that other person perhaps had a third-degree lesion that they had looked more, mm -hmm. which is the rigid esophagoscopy thing. But this sort of drove therapy for the next 30 years in that we said, don't use steroids. It really isn't, based on these 60 patients, a statistical difference. We should scope everybody early on and find out if they're at risk, because the ones who aren't at risk don't necessarily need to be continually followed, but the ones who are at risk probably need to be uh, either imaging, x-ray, or endoscopy, uh, ETD, to see if they are developing strictures, and then they may need dilatations and other therapies as well. So for then, from the 90s on forward, we just stopped using steroids, which may or may not have been the right thing. Um, at the time, until this very provocative paper came along, not that long ago, it was in 2014, so not that many years ago. So Michelle, tell us about how this came to be. Okay. So this next paper is called High Doses of Methylprednisolone in the Management of Caustic Esophageal Burns. It was published by Musta and colleagues in Istanbul and published in Pediatrics in May 2014. Um, so the purpose of this study was to investigate the role of high-dose steroids in preventing esophageal stricture after caustic esophageal injury. Um, this is a complication in 5 to 47 percent of cases, depending on severity. Um, and treatment to prevent this complication has been controversial, as we just talked about, um, with some studies showing no benefit with high-dose steroids and others showing efficacy in cases of grade 2b um, injuries with high-dose steroids. And so this study took 83 children with class 2b um, esophageal burns that were diagnosed with an EGD on arrival. Um, they were all from Istanbul, and they presented within 24 to 48 hours of um, ingestion. The average age of these kids was 4.1, plus or minus 2.6 years. Um, and their main ingestion was oven cleaners or degreasers, followed by lime removers, bleach, hydrochloric acid, acetic acid, and dishwasher fluid. 84% um, of these kids vomited or were forced to vomit before they arrived at the hospital. 
Um, so in this study, they randomized 42 children to the study group and 41 children to the control group. Um, in the study group, they all the patients were made NPO and they were started on TPN. They were given IV ranitidine and ceftriaxone and methylprednisolone uh, at a dose of one gram per 1.73 meters squared per day for three days. The control group received the same treatment, but they did not receive methylprednisolone. Um, they evaluated both groups with an EGD on day 10, um, and then a barium meal upper GI series was done at the end of week three if there were signs or symptoms or concern for stricture formation. Um, and so what they found was um, they diagnosed stricture on EGD in four patients, about 10.8% of the study group, and 12 patients, about 30% of the control group, um, on day 10. And this was statistically significant. The difference was P, sorry, P equal 0 0.038. Um, and then with the barium swallow, they found a difference of 14.3% versus 45%. Um, difference in stricture between the two gro groups with a p-value of 0.004%. Sorry, 0 0.004. Um, additionally, what they found was that people needed to be on TPN for fewer days. Um, so everyone got TPN for seven days, and then they started to decrease it after that time as tolerated. And so people who received steroids were able to tolerate oral feeding sooner. Um, compared to people who didn't receive steroids, and this was also statistically significant, and so it can be extrapolated that people who received high-dose steroids needed to be admitted for less time. Um, methylprednisolone was tolerated without any serious side effects um, and was effective. Yeah, so this was fast-forward you know, 20, 30 years after the Anderson study, where people have pretty much said, well, the one study was done, it answered the question, and I'm not sure it did 100%, because it wasn't that big of a study, but it did have p-value. And they, this group looked at a very, very narrow piece of the question. They looked at the, not the th people with grade three strictures, who everyone knew was going to, a grade three uh, injury, who everyone knew was going to develop strictures, so they looked at those that were grade 2B, and the difference between A and B is B is circumferential around the esophagus, and A is more just streaky or spotty grips and drabs that are second-degree burns. So they looked at the circumferential second-degree burns and said, what if we give those folks steroids? And it took them a while, but it was in an area where there was more lie and uh, serious injuries, because the other study took like 10 years in uh, Boston. Um, and uh, they found a pretty good statistical significant difference between the groups. So I think this actually led to a practice change, although it's recent, it's only been in the last four years. I think our inclination is once again to try to get these kids, and then again these were all children in this study, scoped early if they had any symptoms. If they have a free lesion, obviously they're going to be sick and need to be watched for a long time, they may need TPN. They have a one lesion, they can probably have a diet advance and go home pretty quickly and you know, need some follow-up or probably not scoping. But if they have a 2B lesion, they probably should get steroids. So the doses there is quite a milligram per kilogram per day for several days um, and until they can take orally. Um, and unfortunately, no one's reproduced the study anywhere else. 
Um, but again, this, this is how these studies drive care for sometimes decades without being challenged. There may be other nuances of combination of what the product was, what the pH was, what the intent was, what the age of the, this happened in adults, all sorts of other, I think, unanswered questions that are raised by this study. But I think for kids, certainly, who have um, 2B lesions, I think, our inclination at this point in time, based on this, and we've welcome thanks this paper on to people who are, have not heard of it, uh, to give steroids in these. Changing gears a little bit, you know, one of the issues we have is even going back to the studies where we talked about who should and shouldn't get scoped. Scoping is not as easy as a procedure to do, um, especially in children, but in general. Um, we've sort of given people the wiggle room to do it within 24 hours, although some of the studies say 18 hours, some of the studies say 48 hours. But if, you know, if with our modern technology, is there an alternative? Could CT be substituted? And again, there's risk of radiation. We'll go into that a little bit uh, for those who are we're kind of worried about having these high-grade lesions. Scan them early, make the decision they got high-grade lesions, so I'm on steroids early. This study doesn't address that last question. But um, Adrian, tell us about this first study that actually looked at CT grading and outcomes. Yeah, this is uh, this was published in Clintox in 2010. It's uh, caustic injury. Can CT grading system enable prediction of esophageal stricture? This is a group out of South Korea. Um, so the main objective was to determine um, uh, if the the grade of the esophageal damage um, could be assessed using a CT, and does this actually correlate with um, the esophageal damage? Uh, grading system, they, sorry, let me just pause a second. <laughs> um, so they wanted to assess the correlation between the esophageal damage according to the CT grading system that they came up with and the presence of esophageal stricture on EGD. Um, so they attempted to establish whether there was correlation between a CT grading score and endoscopic grading score and then ultimately come up with their own kind of um, severity-based CT grading score. Uh, so this is a retrospective study, uh, again, out of a hospital in South Korea. Um, it involved patients with caustic ingestions, and it, again, was over a pretty long time course, 1998 to 2009. Um, they included everybody who um, underwent a chest CT within 72 hours of a caustic ingestion and whom um, the presence of esophageal stricture was assessed by um, esophagography, which is essentially just barium swallow. Um, and then the esophageal structure was defined as like a filling defect um, or some extraluminal compression. They ultimately didn't have that many patients. It was 49 patients that uh, were in, uh, included. Um, they did have this new grading system, the CT grading system that they discuss in, in table one. You can see it there. Um, it was just based on like the extent of swelling on the esophageal wall, whether there was um, like adjacent tissue that was affected, and if there was any fluid that it collected kind of around. Um, and so they had grades one through four. Uh, and then they assessed uh, whether the degree of esophageal damage um, determined by the CT was correlated with esophageal stricture. 
They did EGDs on these patients with standard endoscope, and um, they explained the grading system there, which is kind of this typical grade, um, like zero, one, um, two, and through four, I think, yeah. And, um, and there was also like 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B. Um, and then, so let's see. So they wanted to, you know, de determine whether this new grading system the C involving the CT was better than the endoscopic grading system. Um, and so how they did that was they generated these receiver, receiver operating characteristic curves, which I had to look up. It's essentially their graphical plots that illustrate kind of the um, accuracy of a diagnostic test. So as far as the results, um, the most common caustic substance was actually acids, 71%, um, uh, compared to alkalis, which was 28%. And um, this in intent was primarily suicide at 65%, but there were 34% uh, of them were ac accidental. Um, they kind of estimated the amount of the substance uh, ingested, and it ranged anywhere from 10 mLs to 640 mLs. Um, the most common symptoms that people have were sore throat uh, in 53%. There were 16% that had epigastric pain, 12 that had respiratory difficulties, 8% with altered mental status, 6% of um, these folks had vomiting, and 4% had hematemesis. Um, there are seven cases where there's bleeding or perforation, uh, so 14%, and there's three, um, three cases that they had DIC. Uh, all these patients were treated with, treated with H2 blockers and PPIs. Um, there was really no standard dose for those um, or protocol because it's all retrospective. Um, but there also wasn't any standardized um, care like regarding these of antibiotics. Uh, or hydrocortisone. Um, there were 43% of the cases did receive some form of antibiotics and 29% uh, of cases received IV hydrocortisone. Uh, the mean time from ingestion to CT was 17 hours um, and the CT grading scores um, showed that grade three was the most common injury, 40.8%. Uh, followed by grade four, uh, and then grade one was the, the least uh, amount, and that was 12%. Um, the median time of esophagography, so the barium swallow from ingestion was 28 days, um, but ranged anywhere from 14 to 62 days. So they identified structures in 34% of the cases, and among these, um, there were 13 with that CT grade four, uh, three with grade three and one uh, CT grade one. Um, they also tried to look at other parameters just to kind of predictors of um, developing structure, but they found that only um, CT grade four was the only factor that was actually significant in predicting um, structural formation. Um, as far as their EGD, uh, it was performed as early as they could, uh, you know, after the ingestion. Um, you know, when they were stable enough to get it. And the median time of this was uh, 12 hours. So it ranged from two to 46 hours in this group. And the endoscopic grading score showed that grade 2A was the most common. That was 37%, um, followed by grade 3A, and then um, grade 2B. Um, let's see. 
Uh, there were 17, of the 17 people who actually developed the strictures, um, there were six uh, who had endoscopic grade 3A and 4 um, with 2A uh, and, as well as 3B and 3 with uh, 2B. So um, when they were comparing the sensitivity and specificity of the CT and the um, endoscopic grading systems, um, they found that the CT grading system was relatively sensitive and specific um, when you compared it to the endoscopic grading system. And then those ROC curves that I talked about to determine like the diagnostic accuracy of this, um, of the CT versus the endoscopic grading system, um, they found that the area under the curve for those, uh, the CT grading system was larger than the endoscopic grading system. However, it was not statistically significant um, in predicting like structure formation. So this study ultimately demonstrates that the CT grading system can be useful in estimating you know, es um, esophageal structure formation in patients who have these plastic ingestions. Um, of note, they, they talk about how, you know, the median time from the actual ingestion to getting the CT scan was longer um, when you compare it to, like, the time um, until they got their endo endoscopy. And so because of that, it could be that, you know, there was progression of um, tissue swelling, damage, etc., and that may ultimately increase the sensitivity of the CT because you're getting it later. Um, they did find uh, that damage to the esophagus was significantly correlated with the esophageal stricture when, when it approached CT grade 3 and 4. Um, let's see. Um, like I said, they used those areas under the ROC curves to compare the endoscopic and CT grading systems. Um, these, like I said, are used to measure the accuracy of this diagnostic test in discriminating between CT and endoscopic grading system for esophageal stricture. So a ROC curve, um, it can vary between 0.5 and 1. 1 means that like the test is perfect. Um, and the increase in the area of the curve in the study did show that CT, the CT grading system is slightly better uh, for associating esophageal stricture. Um, so, you know, it might be good in the case where the person's too unstable um, to actually undergo endoscopic exam. It's quick and it's non-invasive. Um, they do talk a little bit about radiation here and how obviously if we're CTing everybody that's gonna, um, you know, potentially increase the risk of cancer development. But they, th they noted that the complications um, after these caustic injuries really must be evaluated and there's no way of getting around it essentially. Um, as far as the limitations, obviously it's retrospective so that has its own issues. Uh, they talk again about tissue um, damage like progression and you know it can continue for several hours. You know the CT happens later and so that may be why they're seeing these um, findings in their study. Um, let's see, and then they talk about how a lot of these people were really sick. They had grade three and four injuries most uh, often, and I mean, 34% uh, of patients actually had strictures, um, and because of these results, it seems like maybe um, selection bias could have created been created by the, the retrospective nature of 
of the study. Um, and then another thing too is they only did um, the barium swallow once um, and you know it may have actually missed some down the road because it does take quite some time for the strictures to develop. It can take weeks. Um, so overall their conclusion is that they found an association between their CT grading score and esophageal stricture in patients who visited the ED after caustic ingestion. Um, and it can be inferred, inferred that it's a, just as effective um, uh, as an endos endoscopic procedure. And this is particularly the case in those patients who have very large um, ingestions. They were, um, they're unstable, like I said, um, and where like early endoscopy is like really dangerous. Yeah, so this was another study that attempted to answer, which is better, test. And um, a couple of remarks, and let Tony has an editorial about the same study. But, I mean, a couple of things about it that are worth pointing out is one, if we're going to use this test to rule things in or even rule things out, I mean, they waited like 17 hours to get the CT, which is not what we would do in any emergency mm -hmm. department. We'd say, yes, I'm worried we're going to CT you, or no, I'm not worried we're going to just see if you can swallow tomorrow kind of thing, yeah. eat tomorrow. Um, so that's, you know, one issue. They kind of made these, these grading scales just like off kilter just a little bit, where really a, a grade one CT score is a zero, because there's nothing wrong with this, so they should have just called it zero, mm -hmm. and then it would, they would have aligned grade twos and threes mm -hmm. and fours, instead they're, they're offset by you know, one each, depending on your CT or esophagoscopy, mm -hmm. in the way we think about first, second, and third mm -hmm. degree burns. But, I mean, I think they did prove that if you scan people and they have a second degree or third degree lesion in, in our terms of burns, um, you could probably see it on CT scan and mm -hmm. sort of that threshold is one remembering number you see greater than three millimeters of wall edema, which modern day CT scanners are more than capable of doing. So I'm gonna let Tony has a short editorial piece that accompanies this article and sort of addresses some of the other issues. Yeah, so this is an editorial um, that was written by uh, uh, Jeffrey Isbister and Colin Page out of Australia. Uh, it's called Early Endoscopy or CT and Caustic Injuries, a Reevaluation of Clinical Practice. And this is all based around the previous article that we just reviewed. Um, so they made the case that there's very clearly a role for endoscopy in uh, really severe caustic injuries. Um, because a lot of those will require operative management, uh, but there's really not clear evidence uh, whether or not endoscopy is helpful in uh, cases where a person may be asymptomatic, should we scope those people or not. And in fact, there are some pediatric studies that support no intervention in kids who aren't symptomatic at all. Um, so then they get into talking about this paper that we just talked about by Ryu that was out of South Korea. Um, and they uh, talk about their data suggesting that CT uh, is superior to early endoscopy for defining the risks of stricture, um, but they point out that there's a couple of problems with the injury, uh, I'm sorry, with the study, and that is that um, only, only people with severe injuries were included in that study, and that's not necessarily what we as a poison center are being called about. Um, we're getting sort of all kinds of things. This person may have drank bleach or you know, it's not necessarily just the um, just the severe injuries that we're getting called about uh, or having to manage. And so, how do we figure out what people need what? Because this paper only includes severe people. Um, most most 
ingestions out in the world are like bleach and ammonia and detergents and just don't have the sort of um, the seriousness that um, the majority of the people in this study did. So, uh, but, but what they really say is the main problem with the review study is the math. Uh, which <laughs> I thought was uh, an interesting, so basically they said their statistical analysis was wrong and they calculated everything incorrectly. Um, so they said they re they basically recalculated it using a different methods. So they used something called the Wilson's procedure with a continuity correction and recalculated the sensitivity, specificity, uh, and then positive and negative predictive values for the CT versus endoscopy and predicting uh, stricture. Um, and they say that based on their recalculation, there's a very clear superiority. So the review paper was sort of like, yeah, it's a little bit better, but it's not super clear. This one, with their recalculation, if we're to trust their math, uh, says that <laughs> there is a very clear superiority of the CT grading system over the endoscopy uh, as a rule out. Um, and so what we're really looking at, as Zane alluded to earlier, is the negative predictive value. And um, they have a negative predictive value of CT grading uh, three or four as 93%, um, which is pretty impressive. So very few strictures are gonna be missed. And then what they also say is because we're trying to generalize, generalize this to more, um, you know, a more representative population, so people who may not have really severe ingestions, uh, actually the negative predictive value um, well, it's unclear whether it'll go up or down, should go down if you add more less severe cases. Um, so the negative, I'm sorry, should go up if there's uh, less severe cases. So the negative predictive value when applied to the general population actually should be much higher. Um, so what they conclude is um, that there is probably not really a role um, for early endoscopy in a lot of cases uh, compared to CT, and in fact, there is some small amount of risk that comes with endoscopy. Um, so some studies have said it's totally safe, but uh, they referenced a study that was, uh, I don't, we haven't talked about this one, but it's TODA, and they used a very small nine millimeter pediatric endoscope with very cautious advancement into the endoscope, and that's not necessarily how all of these are being done. Um, so to say that it's completely safe is not necessarily accurate. Um, depending on how it's done. So there is some risk to endoscopy versus, you know, you can say sort of like CT does have some radiation risk, but in reality, the risk of some physical harm coming to the person at that point is very low. Um, so they um, conclude uh, basically that the review study uh, actually demonstrates the superiority of CT over the endoscopic grading system, and that, of course, we just need to study this in a bigger population. So. I think that seems reasonable, like a reasonable conclusion from what they wrote. Right, yeah. You know, their, their point of without referring to the whole receiver-operator curve sometimes is useful when you're looking at a, a test that has sort of an incremental predictive value like hemoglobin for a risk of bleeding or potassium for risk of arrhythmia or something like that, where you have numbers that go up and down rather than the scores two or three or something, sort of big jumps. But yeah, the, you know, they say the negative predictive value, if you're just looking for the CT grade three and four, which leaves out CT two, which is still positive, is yeah. still 93%. Um, so again, the unanswered question is, what if you did all of these like early on, they hit the door and it's an hour later, you get a CT scan. Is that gonna make a difference or are you gonna miss people? And we don't have an answer for that, but there was another study done a few years later and another, error again looking at the role of chest CT which maybe clears it up or maybe doesn't we'll see we'll uh, see Lauren 
So um, this is uh, Y. Lurie's study out of clinical toxicology in 2013 entitled The Role of Chest and Abdominal Computed Tomography in Assessing the Severity in a, of Acute Corrosive Ingestion. Um, they mention actually a lot of the previous studies that we were discussing and actually I think handle their early discussion um, with knowledge of their outcome when they wrote this. They actually handled it quite diplomatically. They did acknowledge your study and that, you know, a larger study needed to be completed and that your CT study was looking at patients who had CTs within 72 hours. But when we take a step back, and they, I don't know if they said this specifically in this study, but if you take it back yourself back as an emergency physician, your whole goal is to um, partition your patients into who is sick, who do I need to worry about, and who do I not. And we know we cannot rely on clinical symptoms, but maybe we can use that CT scan to help catch those patients who are sick, who we may not even see on, um, a soft, uh, on EGD, and doing an early CT is our first step in our pathway. Um, and so they did a retrospective uh, study and uh, had initially set out to have a large study they did and their um, inclusion criteria were people who um, over the age of 18 who had a um, caustic ingestion and had both a chest CT and an EGD done within 48 hours of their admission so it was this very acute time period when they first came in um, and then they had corrosive substances, including alkali acids and bleaches. Um, unfortunately, it sounds like CT was not available during the initial years of the study. Um, so even though it was a 12-year study from 2000 to 2012, their inclusion from 300 patients was only 23 patients, which is about half the population of um, Adrian's study, unfortunately. Um, and then the goal, the end game for them was that they were attempting to their theory and hypothesis was to assess the capacity of CT and endoscopy to predict the mortality and emergency laparotomy um, by using sensitivity, specificity, positive and negative predictive values using confidence intervals. So that was their goal, was to establish all these mathematical findings for CT and endoscopy to predict mortality and emergent laparotomy. So interestingly, out of their um, 23 patients, um, half were female. The range was, of years was 18 to 87 years old. Um, 18 cases, so about 78% were intentional ingestions. And then um, seven um, had to go for emergent surgery and five, um, five died. Um, so it was about 20% of them actually died. Uh, and then what's, they use the same EGD grading scale that we discussed previously from a grade 0 to 3B. They used a different grading scale for CT than in Adrian's study. So they did start with a grade 0 being normal, which I think they were trying to correct um, from that study to make it easier to understand. And then they had grade 1, um, grade 2, and grade 3. And so grade 1 was just edema. Grade 2, they could see soft tissue infiltration, but they didn't quite say what that meant. And then grade 3 would be if there were air bubbles in the organ wall, any perforation or evidence of fluid collection or free air in other areas. Um, so what's interesting, the best table I think that they had laid out was table 2, where they go through all, they do the um, an EGD grading and the CT grading of all the patients. And if you look at it, you see there's really no correlation of the CT grade to either laparotomy or mortality at all. And that's the essential finding. So for instance, out of the five people who died, 
Um, one of them had a normal scan, CT scan, within those 48 hours. Two had a grade one. Um, and of those people who had a grade one, so only edema on their CT scan, when they EGD'd them, they had level 3A, so quite serious findings on EGD. Um, and then two of them did show grade three, so the highest grade CT. So, but I mean, if you look at that, you have one normal, two not so bad, and two that looked horrible, and all of those patients died. So really, CT seems quite useless if you just don't do the math yet, but just kind of taking an outward perspective of how you're going to look at this. Um, there were two patients who could not even undergo EGD because their edema was so severe. Um, and they did, it seems like CT is very reasonable in those patients because you're trying to get as much information as you can. One of those had a quote unquote normal CT, so not even edema. Um, and the other one had grade three CT, which is uh, interesting at the time. And then the same thing goes for those seven patients who had laparotomy. So um, laparotomy is indicated in patients who have, you know, who are going to need reconstruction or if they had a perforation. And out of those patients, there were uh, the same CT grading. So of course, the, there's um, four patients who died. They all had undergone laparotomy. So we have those same numbers from before. So one with a normal CT, one with a severe CT, and then we had a couple extras with like an intermediate CT in there. So really CT, So and then they, they calculated the numbers for us, but I'm, nobody's going to memorize that from me reading it out loud. Um, but essentially, the sensitivity was quite poor <laughs> and the specificity was slightly better. So for predicting mortality, and then what they also did was they took the CT reading at the time of the case and then they also had an objective um, radiologist for this study and they would give them the images and have them independently read them only knowing what the caustic uh, and the, what the caustic ingestion was and the time from the exposure. So they kind of had a repeat and from there, the um, project radiologist only agreed with the emergency radiologist like back in the past from the retrospective time, 50% of the time as well. Like poor Kappa value. Yeah, so uh, yeah, the internal, yeah, pretty tough here. So um, essentially the CT was like for mortality, uh, the sensitivity was 60% and then 94% specific. To predict laparotomy, it was 43% sensitive and 94% specific. Um, what And then they kind of go, so essentially the CT was not very helpful at all because it was in this study. And then they, they have a discussion of like, you know, things that endoscopy can miss as well. And hey, the CT was interesting because like in one patient, there was splenic involvement from the caustic mm -hmm. ingestion. Right. They're like, well, we wouldn't have picked that up from EGD and you know, and that patient may need surgery. So there still could be benefit to using a CT to help grade like very severe injuries. And also another patient has uh, had aspirated and so I guess chest x-rays were done before that patient had had the CT that didn't identify the aspiration. But as we are familiar with, with aspiration pneumonitis, it's something that develops with time as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's hard to say how that factored in, but the, they're kind of throwing a bone for CT saying like, hey, you know, they can pick up other organ injuries, could pick up aspiration and other stuff that may still be clinically useful, but it wasn't clinically useful for deciding like who needs to go for EGD and who's going to predict having a very poor outcome. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's what yeah. I have for that. And, and it wasn't perfect or wasn't actually that good in predicting who could maybe go home because mm -hmm. there were people who had CT grade zero who died and <laughs> CT grade one who had died in both that injury. Mm -hmm. So it's 
it threw a lot of cold water on uh, the prior study. Um, not saying there isn't a role for CT, because I think the issue that gets in, we get into is we scope somebody, they have a severe lesion, they're in the ICU, and then they develop some new set of symptoms. They drop their blood pressure, they become febrile, they have increasing chest pain, and you don't know if they haven't perforated or developed mediastinitis at that point. And I think at that point, the role for CT hasn't been studied, but I think our feeling is that they need the CT to figure out what's going on as a progressive factor rather than as an immediate screening test. Mm -hmm. So uh, to sum up, I mean, it's, it's a difficult problem. We've known it's been a difficult problem for more than 50 years. Um, it'd be nice if people could not get their hands on a really concentrated lie, <laughs> um, but we, we, we do and it's sold and it's probably more so nowadays there's some severe products out there. Sort of, you know, benign a taste of household, I mean, real household old-fashioned bleach is probably not going to cause this, or just a drop of ammonia is probably not going to cause this, but the more severe agents, toilet bowl cleaners, toilet drain cleaners, all these sort of things, pool cleaners, uh, cement cleaners, these are the things we worry the most about. Um, symptoms, I guess if you have them, you need to be scoped. <laughs> any symptom, anywhere, anytime, you got one, you probably need to be scoped because you can't tell. Um, if you can't scope them, can we scan them? I don't know, with kids, I'm a little hesitant to do it just because of the radiation and the fact that it's got a, it's never been studied in kids and adults, it doesn't have a very good negative rule out rate, at least by the second study. I guess if there was some adult and they were just couldn't get to some place where they needed to be and they were talking about letting them go home or not or whatever, maybe a CT has some role the next day, but I'm not sure immediately has that much of a role. If they're sick, they probably all need to be scoped. They need to be in an ICU. Um, steroids, the pendulum has swung towards giving steroids, but again, remember that one more recent study was only done in children and only done in children with 2B injuries based on EGD. So if you're going to use steroids, I think you should wait until you know they've been scoped and they have a circumferential lesion but not a grade 3 lesion, which isn't the vast majority of them, but usually it's a minority of them cases we have. So it gets to be complicated and we've had issues trying to convince people of all this that we know. We have written our own policies that reflect many of the concepts that went into this study to try to give us some stepwise logic, but ultimately it's a judgment of knowing all this and, and putting it together plus the where they are, what they can do where they are, what did they drink and was it intentional or accidental um, and other factors that are probably not in all this. So, any other comments from anybody? Matt, you've been long enough, yeah? Yeah, so there's, um, uh, and we might want to add for the future, or actually the fellows should probably take a look, there's a Lancet review article called mm. Caustic Injuries from 2017, mm. which kind of has a nice summary. But this is, uh, in, in my mind, a very complex subject, like much more than meets the eye. You've got, I'm trying to take up too much time, but you're basically trying to figure out like, so you have an event, right, and we have outcome. And in between, we have to try and figure out how we're going to diagnose and how we're going to treat, right? So there are characteristics of the events, which may be useful. Diagnosis, you know, we sort of skipped over it, but there may be some utility labs like bilirubin, thrombocytopenia, pH. These things have been shown in, in smaller studies that may be 
potentially diagnostic or prognostic. And then we talk about scope, right? And we talk about CT. Um, the treatment, so there's lots of things, right? Steroids, antibiotics, talking about stenting, talking about surgery, right? And outcomes, what do we care about? Well, some stricture formation potentially, um, um, death, I think should probably go on our list. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's an important one. And, you know, it, the other thing is to kind of figure out, like, what is your perspective? There's, there's literature coming out of the surgery world, which is really concerned, right, with this particular thing. That's right here, surgery. So taking somebody's esophagus out is not a small task, right? But they're doing it in order to try and prevent death. So um, how are they, what does the surgery literature tell us? Well, maybe endoscopy might be helpful, but in recent years, they've found that actually CT might be a little bit more predictive of the lesions that they care about. And there's been, albeit small studies, comparing like CT alone versus CT and endoscopy. And there's at least one study a couple of years ago that suggested that there were more unnecessary surgeries performed when relying on endoscopy data. So that might throw us off, right? As we've talked about, endoscopy doesn't have a great ability to look at transmural lesions, and so there's depth issues here, right? CT, we wonder about reliability, or in our world, um, what we really care about is this event, is most of them will be mild, right? We see a lot of, oh, and then the other thing is like, you know, children versus adults. Mm -hmm. And we, as Zane alluded to, we don't know a whole lot about children because they're hard to study. There's different considerations, how much they drink, what the products are. It's usually unintentional. Um, radiation exposure, yada, yada. Um, and adult exposures are, are, you know, classically different. But there, there are issues with the reliability of CT scans. But on the other hand, if the thing that you care about is whether or not you need to take their esophagus out, well, that may play a role. Of course, CTs are different in different radiologists' eyes, so do you need a specialist radiologist? There's, in the Lancet article, it mentions the, general radio, the agreement between general and spe specialized radiologists with CT is pretty good. Endoscopy suffers from the problem of you have to have a specialized center, right? Um, and people who are trained in doing that. So already you're introducing more logistical problems here. And so what we care about on our end is not necessarily doing surgery, although if they end up at a surgical center, it should also be one that has the ability to do CT, because I doubt anybody's gonna go to surgery, at least in the adult population, to have an esophagectomy without first having a CT scan done. But do we do that off the bat? We don't know. I don't think we can answer that question. Also, we haven't really talked about stricture, but who knows how they form, uh, you know, who, who they're gonna form in and what the best treatment is for that. I don't think that's been decided upon. So this issue gets really, really, really complicated. And one of the ways that we could look at it from a toxicologic perspective is as kind of the initial gatekeepers. Because we're not gonna be doing surgery on these patients. And if they end up with a severe caustic injury they need to be at a special center that has all of these sorts of abilities and multiple different services are going to have to be involved. But what we're kind of interested in upstream is 
sort of the, what's a good sensitivity, right? We care a lot about sensitivity to predict significant outcome. Because we want to sort of be able to say with a high degree of confidence, all right, uh, these patients can go home. They don't need to be transferred a thousand miles by an airplane for endoscopy and CT and to see a GI specialist and to see a cardiothoracic surgeon. But I don't know that we've necessarily answered this question. And I agree, it's hard because you take all comers, and generally all these studies did not evaluate all comers. They started mm -hmm. with populations of 300, and then they had 60 patients that they actually studied. And we get essentially the, the call on the other 250 patients all the time. And it's tough. I, I think it, if they're completely asymptomatic and nothing's going on and they can eat and drink, those are sort of low-hanging fruit. You can kind of say they're probably going to be okay. But we've had a couple of disasters, not necessarily here, but certainly in the literature, where people looked pretty good and they got sent home. And I say pretty good because they you go back and actually read the charts. They weren't 100% fine. There was something going on. They were tachycardic or they, they drank but only when encouraged to drink by an aggressive... Uh, uh, medical uh, staff. Um, so you have to say, symptomatic is symptomatic. If they're tachycardic, they're symptomatic. If they have a little bit of pain when they swallow and they make a face and they're a kid, they're symptomatic. So we, sometimes we have to kind of tease out that, well, they took a bottle. And they took a bottle, but they were making a face the whole time and they spit out a couple of it. That's, that's not asymptomatic. So I think once they breach their having symptoms threshold, we gotta do something. I think right now the gold standard is scoping. We don't have a good answer on can you CT some of them and rule them out or rule them in. Apparently, at least by the last article, the answer is probably no. Uh, once they're sick, I think a CT helps determine how sick. And like Matt said, they're probably going to get a CT or two before they go to the OR um, to figure out what needs to be done for the really, really sick ones. But there's that big gray zone in the middle that we're still scratching our heads over. So a lot of this is fuzzy logic, and a lot of this is judgment, and unfortunately a lot of it sometimes is just anecdotal. I had this really bad case that looked great and had horrible things happen down the, down the road. So yeah. um, it leaves, remains unanswered, as you say. Yeah, and I th in the similar vein that you know the radiology literature would tell you that you can CT somebody after a stuffing event, and that's mm -hmm. predictive. Mm -hmm. The surgery literature would suggest that everybody should get a CT scan. So I just think, I, I point that only out only to be cognizant of how if a patient is gonna end up in the, special, in the care of a specialist, that specialist may be informed by their own body of literature, which could be potentially at odds with what we've seen in the toxicologic literature. So there will always be those disagreements, but I think we can do a better job of appreciating what their decision might be informed by. And almost all the studies have referral bias issues. Oh, it's of like by the time you got to an ENT surgeon or a cardiovascular surgeon, like three or four people have ruled out all the other stuff that they didn't need to see. But so you have to take that all with uh, those understanding what these numbers mean, understand what a kappa value part of agreement, whether the basic radiologist agreed with the definitive radiologist understanding specificity is not that good of a value, but negative and positive predictive value is what we do in the emergency room figure out who's sick and who's not sick. Now if I had an adult caustic patient show up in, and I'm working at OHSU, I'm gonna send them for a CT mm -hmm. because that doesn't cost me or them anything. It could add to their mm -hmm. care. 
if, it, if they're sick, they're going to get admitted, and they may or may not get scoped, or they might go straight to a cardiothoracic surgery service if they have grade three injuries radiographically. But that doesn't mean that that same logic applies if you're taking call on a six-year-old uh, up in rural Alaska. Like, do you recommend a CT then? Because the transport time to a pediatric GI specialist who's going to be able to scope them is so long, or do they just need to go right away? I mean, it's just just an incredibly complex topic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And we'll be back next month with another topic for the Oregon Point Center.